Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Um, We're in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, we'll get there in just a second. But if you listen to Christian radio... um, there has been uh, a new song that's kind of hit, uh, hit the radio. Uh, I heard it on K-Love the other day, which means that it's gone national. It's hit the charts in the past month by a, na- uh, by a new artist by the name of Ann Wilson. Uh, Ann is actually a native of Lexington. My daughter's actually went to school where she graduated there at Veritas Academy uh, here in town. She just graduated last year, and she's kind of hit the music scene uh, with a vengeance, if you will. She released a new song entitled My Jesus. I don't know if you've heard it yet. Uh, but I wanted to start off this morning. I wanted to I want to encourage you to look up the song, listen to it, but also pay very close attention to the lyrics because the lyrics are powerful and they 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 provide a perfect diving board for jumping into the subject matter of the message this this morning. And it says this, are you past the point of weary? Is your burden weighing heavy? Is it all too much to carry? Then let me tell you about my Jesus. Do you feel that empty feeling? Because shame's done all of its stealing. Are you desperate for some healing? Then let me tell you about my Jesus. He makes a way where there ain't no way. He rises up from an empty grave. There ain't no sinner that he can't save, so let me tell you about my Jesus. His love is strong and his grace is free, and the good news is that I know that he can do for you what he's done for me, so let me tell you about my Jesus, and I love the last line of the chorus, and let my Jesus change your life. That's what we've been talking about with the Gospel to Every Home series that we closed out last week. And as I was thinking about this kind of like this interim period as we step into, as we get ready ready to step into sabbatical, I thought about how can we best bridge out of that series and into the next. And what we've been talking about with the Gospel and the importance of taking the Gospel to every home is we're talking about taking life-giving, life-changing, healing news into a community, into a world that is destroyed and sick and darkened because of sin and the weight and the effects of it. And the only way to change that is to tell them about our Jesus. He's the only one that can deliver. He's the only one that can deliver hope. He's the only one that can deliver healing. He's the only one that can deliver eternal life. And church, here's the problem. We must believe that before we take it out and expect anyone else to ever believe it. And sometimes I think we struggle with that a little bit. Maybe it's because familiarity sometimes breeds contempt or apathy, or we've heard the old, old story so much that it just doesn't move us anymore. But remember this, every last one of us were dead until Jesus brought us out of that grave. That's a story that we should never get tired of telling. That's a story that should constantly be on our minds. It should constantly be on our hearts. It should constantly be on our lips. What is more important, what is more valuable for people to hear than where the dead can find life? What is more valuable? And this is what Jesus does. He changes lives. Jesus is such a powerful force that he changes those that he touches. This was his mission when he said he came to seek and to save that which is lost. He changes the lost to found. He changes the blind to seeing. He changes the dead to living. He changes the sick to healed. He changes the broken to whole. He changes the lame to walking. He changes the doubtful to faithful. There's not a thing that Jesus can't change for your good and for his glory. Jesus makes all the difference in a meeting with him and you will never be the same. 
As we look through scripture, everyone who allowed Jesus to touch their lives were changed forever. But tragically, there were some in scripture who were in the presence of Jesus and were in the presence of Jesus for a long time, but somehow managed to escape his reach and escape his touch. That's one of the things that teaches me that salvation is one of those things that we must receive. It's a gift that we must receive by our own will. To see the gift of grace before us, we must reach out and grab that gift if we are to apply it to our lives. And this morning, I want to see in this text that we look at in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 30, and it's a long piece of scripture, but it's a familiar story to some, but I hope it's not a familiar reality to us today. So let's look at John chapter 13, beginning in verse number 1, and it says, Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Catch that. Catch how much Jesus loves us. He loves us to the end. And the thing is, with him, there is no end. He loves us to the end of this life, and he loves us beyond that to the end of eternity. And there is no end to eternity. He loves us. Now, when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Judas knew that the father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, he laid aside his outer clothing, he took a towel, and he tied it around himself. And this next part for some of our kids gets a little icky. Next, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel that he tied around him. He came to Simon Peter and who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, said, what I'm doing, you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, then you have no part with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Got to love Peter, man. Got to love his attitude, right? First, he's like, no, Jesus, you ain't washing my feet. And, and Jesus is like, listen, Peter, just let me do it. And he says, if you, if you don't let me do that, you can't be part of me. He's like, then give me an entire bath. I mean, Peter just goes to the extremes on everything, right? In verse number 10, he says, one who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. He said, you, Peter, are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, and this is why he said, not all of you are clean. When Jesus had washed their feet and he put on their outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? He said, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you that a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. He said, but I'm not speaking about all of you, because I know those who I have chosen, but the scripture must be fulfilled, the one who eats my bread and raised his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he or I am the Messiah. Truly, I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. And in verse number 21, we see some of the most tragic verses in scripture. When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit and he testified, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. And one of his disciples, the one that Jesus loved, was reclining close beside Jesus. Simon Peter mentioned to him 
to find out who it was that he was talking about. So Peter's over there still licking his wounds, and he's like, hey, John, ask Jesus who he's talking about. Ask him who it is. So he leaned back against Jesus, and he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus replied, it's the one that I give this piece of bread to after I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. After Jesus ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're going to do, do it quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he said this to him. Since Judas kept the money bag, since Judas was the treasurer, some thought that Jesus was telling him, go and buy what we need for the festival or that he should give something to the poor. After receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left and it was night. Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that you would illuminate us to the truth of your word that we need to apply to our lives as your followers. As we see this tragic figure of Judas Iscariot, one who could walk and minister and do all sorts of good things right next to you, could still be so far away from you that he would miss salvation. Lord, I pray that our church and our churches across this world would learn the lesson we need to learn from Judas, that we would not be filled with his spirit, but be filled with the spirit of God who draws us to salvation, who draws us to redemption, who draws us to forgiveness, and who gives us life. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. This passage right here leads us through a lot of different emotional scenes. We see the Passover feast. We know that it's getting down to the waning hours of Jesus' earthly ministry. We see betrayal. We see all kinds of things. We see the extreme humility of Christ as he washes the feet of his disciples, including the one who would betray him just a few hours later. We see the identification of the traitor. We see the source of the betrayal identified as a work of Satan himself, that Satan was the one orchestrating this the whole time. And then we see the traitor depart to do his work. John chapter 13 is the height of drama. There are very few stories that we can come up with in history, very few stories that we can even manipulate in our minds that would be filled with this kind of drama like this is. But what's so tragic to me is the fact that this man, Judas, squandered his opportunity and he had opportunity after opportunity to be changed by Christ. And he made the conscious choice to resist Christ's saving grace and his changing power. And it earned him the notorious reputation as being the Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus Christ. But the worst tragedy about Judas is not what we remember him for. The worst tragedy about Judas is where he is today. Because he lived and ministered with Christ, but now he spends eternity separated from him in hell. When you hear the name Benedict Arnold, you think traitor. When you hear the name Judas Iscariot, you think traitor. And here's the thing, when Benedict Arnold did his betraying, they called him Judas. There are some people that just become notorious for their betrayal. But I wonder sometimes if the way that we act and the way that we do things sometimes and go about our faith, we have the spirit of Judas at times. The obvious question we have to ask is how can somebody be so close to this life-changing and life-giving force of Jesus and not be spiritually affected from it? But see, Judas isn't the only one who has that tragic problem because each church, I believe, contains the spirit of Judas in it. There are folks, I believe, who sit in pews or chairs or sit in worship services every single week 
that are kind of acting like Judas. They're, spirit, they're physically close to Christ, but they are spiritually far away from him. They know, the tr- they know the truth. They participate in the church. They talk the talk. They put on a good show. They're so close. But when it comes to salvation and redemption, when it comes to a life-changing relationship with the Savior Jesus Christ, they're still miles away. And I pray this morning, and my challenge to you this morning is, I pray that that not be you. This is the longest time that I'm about ready to take my time out of the pulpit. I don't want to leave you with just a feel-good message that if, if a month, we don't know what can happen in a month, and if the next time I stand before you, you're not here, I want you to have known your opportunity to trust Jesus Christ. So today I want to look at the tragedy of an unchanged life. The tragedy of an unchanged life. And the first part of an unchanged life is one that is marked by, number one, being physically close to salvation, but yet spiritually far away from receiving it. Being spiritually close to salvation, but yet spiritually far from seeing it. What we have to find here in Judas, when you look at Judas, you're like, Judas just didn't get it. I almost wonder sometimes if Judas had some sort of deficiency about him, that he had so much proof that Jesus was the Messiah, so much opportunity to receive him, yet he still walked away, yet he still turned his back on it. See, Scripture gives us accounts of people who had salvation placed right before them, yet turned away and never received it. The rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, hey, what do I need to do to be your follower? And Jesus said, sell all that you have, because he, not because selling everything would be his salvation, but because Jesus knew that his stuff was what was going to hold him back from truly following him. And the rich young ruler went away because he had a lot of possessions and he never truly followed Jesus Christ. It was a tragic figure. We also see evidence of Festus and of Agrippa who were almost persuaded to come to Jesus Christ. But Judas has to be the most mind-boggling one of them all because Judas for three and a half years, for three and a half years, walked and ministered side by side with Jesus Christ. There were only, think about this, there were only 11 other people on the planet at that time who could have argued that they were closer to Christ than Judas Iscariot. 11 other people. The 11 other disciples the only, were the only ones who could stand around, which we see in Scripture, they sometimes did, and argued about who was the best and the closest to Christ. Judas was with Jesus every day, living, working, traveling, eating, sleeping in the presence of Jesus Christ. He was an integral part of the greatest and most significant ministry in history, yet he was unchanged by it. One of the points of proof that we see is in Matthew chapter 26 is when we begin to see Judas like change a little bit and we begin to think something might be wrong with Judas because towards the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus was there with his disciples in a village called Bethany. This woman that we believe was Mary Magdalene comes into the house and anoints Jesus with some really expensive oil called spikenard. The disciples begin to argue that it was wasteful to spend so much money and to just spend it by spilling it out upon one person. And they begin to argue and say, we could have used this money to feed the poor. And Jesus says, look, you're always going to have the poor around you to be able to minister to. And Jesus says, but I'm not going to be around forever. And Mary understands this. And so she's anointed me as a symbol looking forward to my death to fulfill prophecy. And so he says, don't trouble her. And understand where we're coming from. And the the moment that he does that, the room begins to understand. And they're silenced. And they begin to understand the significance of the moment. But there's one guy who still just can't shake it. It's Judas. All Judas could see was all that money just laying on the floor or laying on Jesus' hair. 
And he's thinking, man, next day, tomorrow, Jesus, you're not going to smell like that. It's, it's just going to go away. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Why were we so wasteful? And he begins to get angry at that. And the Bible tells us that that's the moment that Judas decides, I can't do it anymore. Jesus wasn't worth it anymore. The spirit of Judas will cause us to say, at some point, there will be a line where we say, I can't go any further. There are some people who can do Christian things for a long time, but there is going to come a time when God will bring us to a place where we say, I just can't do it anymore. And we're going to eventually say, I choose this over Jesus. For Judas, it was money. Judas loved money more than he loved Jesus. Look what it says in Matthew 26, verse 14. He says, Then one of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and he said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? Immediately after the anointing at Bethany, this is when Judas decides it's time. So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. And from that time, Judas started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Judas goes from looking for a good opportunity to minister with Jesus to now looking for a good opportunity to betray and to stop Jesus's ministry. This is the work of Satan. And hear this and hear this well. Satan doesn't mind coming to church. He doesn't mind. Matter of fact, some of the best work that he can do is right inside of the church. Because if he can convince us to start loving other things, or start following a version of Jesus that we create in our own mind that just is more palatable or feels more comfortable, there will come a time when we say, you know what, I'll follow Jesus, but I don't think I can go there. For Judas, it was money. I just don't think he's worth it. And you got to ask this question, how could he miss it? How could he miss it? How can a person walk with Jesus for three and a half years, talking with him every day, witnessing the miracles he performed, seeing the heart of compassion that he had for people, hearing his convicting messages and words, all to walk out the door of the upper room that pass overnight and sell Jesus away for 30 pieces of silver. So we can spend the rest of our lives wondering and speculating as to why or how Judas could be so tragically wrong, but it all serves to make us aware of one startling truth. And that is, it is possible to be physically close to Jesus, but yet spiritually be miles away. You say, well, I can't be physically close to Jesus. He's not here physically anymore, but you can be physically close to Jesus stuff. You can be in the church. You can be involved in every ministry. You can be doing all the right things, but you can be still missing the spiritual significance. There are countless people today that are just like Judas. Every Sunday in the pew, filling out every blank in the bulletin, singing the songs, knowing the verses, know everyone in the church by name. You've seen people around you get genuinely moved by the Lord. You've clapped for people who make professions of faith in Christ. You smile at the news of homes being put back together and marriages restored by the power of God or the testimony of people who found victory over addiction or hearing when there's been answered prayer and healing after a church has come together to pray. You've dropped money in love offerings for missions and maybe you've not missed a week of tithing for years. You've seen the power of God on display. You've seen the change, the real change that takes place in people's lives when they're touched by Jesus Christ and his saving power, but they're physically close to Christ, yet it's not happened in your life. You're still spiritually far away. You're like a spiritual alien walking in disguise in a land of believers. Don't let that be you. That was Judas for three and a half years. He was Satan's man walking in a land of spiritual believers right next to God's man and was unchanged. 
And trust me, it's not because God's man didn't have the power to change him. It's because in God's man's compassion and mercy and respect for us as his creation, he gives us a choice. So let me get personal with you for a second. Does that describe you? Does that describe you? You come to church every week in this house. You genuinely love the people that you worship with, but you know that something just isn't right. Something just doesn't seem to be clicking in your spirit. You can't understand why the look on other people's faces seems to be so genuine while you're just trying to mimic it and copy it so nobody notices anything is wrong. It's because they have the real thing. And you can try to manufacture it, and you can fake it for a while, but eventually the mask melts away. Something will get hot enough to make the mask melt away, and all that's standing there is the genuine article. Looking like a Christian, acting like a Christian, talking like a Christian, hanging out with Christians, going to all the places that Christians go, doesn't make you a Christian. Only Jesus makes you a Christian. Judas spent three and a half years around Jesus, physically closer to Jesus than any one of us in this room, yet he was spiritually miles away. He spent three and a half years in the physical presence of Jesus, but never spent one second with Jesus. The tragedy of an unchanged life is one that's marked by being physically close yet spiritually far. The tragedy of an unchanged life is also one that is marked by doing all the right things, but doing them with the wrong motives. Judas knew how to do the right things. He, he really did. Matter of fact, he was so well respected among the rest of the disciples that when it came time to choose the treasurer for the ministry, they chose Judas. I kind of wondered why they didn't pick Matthew. I mean, Matthew was the tax collector. He was the numbers guy. Maybe they didn't trust him because, you know, tax collectors just weren't very well respected, right? So they're probably like, yeah, Matthew, you ain't touching this money. This is God's money. You can touch Rome's money if you want to, but you ain't touching God's. But for some reason, out of all of them, when they said, let's choose who it's going to be, they chose Judas. Judas was well-respected. None of them, when Jesus said, hey, somebody's going to betray me in this room, none of them just looked up and looked at Judas. No one knew who it was going to be. Judas did all the right things. He did all of the discipling that was expected of him. And then some. Because as the treasurer of the ministry, when, when, they would walk, when they would walk into a new town, they would have to pay the temple tax and they would have to pay the tithes and all. The, yeah, Jesus even tithed and Jesus still gave offerings too, you see. And, 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 so, so, and Judas is standing next to Jesus when he's giving out alms to those who are needing things as the treasurer is the one who's holding on to all of the assets of the ministry. Judas was hands on with loving people, but he did it without love in his heart. He did it for a different reason, and we see a little bit later why he does it. But Judas knew how to do all the right things. Every time we see Judas mentioned in Scripture, it's written from a hindsight 2020 thing. As we read and we see Judas's name, it kind of just makes you go, ooh. It's like if you're, if you're reading it, you sense that ominous music when it says the name of Judas, right? And it always says the one who would betray Christ or the one who was a devil or the one, all of these things. But at the moment that Judas's life was happening and what he was doing, everybody looked at him and said, man, that guy must be full of the spirit. That guy's doing all the right things. Look at how well he's, tr he's trusted to take care of the assets of that ministry. Kind of makes you wonder about the treasurers of our churches today. No, I'm just teasing. Just teasing. I'm kidding about that. But the problem is he did all those things, all of those things, with the wrong motives. You see, if you go back to John's account of Mary anointing Jesus, we see a more detailed 
and condemning version of Judas's opposition to Mary using the costly spike. See, I, I noticed this when I was studying. I looked at Matthew's account of Judas, and then I also looked at John's account of Judas. And, and I can say this. See, see God, God is the author of all of Scripture. But he used the disciples, and he used those writers with their own personalities, and he, and he influenced them, but he let their personality shine through. Matthew's a more diplomatic character. He's like, you know, the disciples got a little upset at the fact that the money could have been given to the poor. So John just goes brass knuckles, all right, on Judas. Okay, so look, look at John's account. After Mary comes and pours out the spikenard in John chapter 12, verse number four, he says, then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him. I mean, John is just hacked off at Judas. I mean, he bore a grudge, right? And he said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and he would steal part of what was put in. So John just outs Judas right here. Later on, what they find out about Judas is he was embezzling money from the ministry. This is why he liked being close to the money bag. This is why he was there as they were giving out the money because he didn't want to give it all away because he needed to grab some for himself. Judas was trying to hide his sin and bury it under righteous clothes, like a wolf in sheep's clothing. John says that Judas was a thief, and according to John, Judas the treasurer was embezzling, skimming money off the top, and he had a heart that is one of a thief. But to cover his ailing and sin-sick heart, he tries to force change from the outside in. He tries to remind everyone that the money used for this extravagant ceremony that Mary just did could have been used for the poor. His love for money had clouded his view, and he couldn't see past the dollars and the cents to estimate the true worth of Jesus Christ. What's interesting to me is that when you consider the two values that are mentioned here, the spikenard that was very costly and very valuable, scholars today say that the spikenard and the amount that was given, the box of spikenard that was broken for Jesus, amounted to about one year of a middle-class person's earned wages. About a year of it. Do you know how much 30 pieces of silver amounted to in those days? As I was researching and I was looking at that, some say on the cheapest side, it'd be about worth 20 bucks. On the most expensive side, it would have been worth about six weeks of a middle class earned wages. So in the final analysis of everything, Judas is saying, Jesus, you're not worth one-tenth of what Mary thinks you're worth. In his eyes, Jesus wasn't more valuable than money. In the end, nothing was more valuable than money for him even his own life. And the application that we pull from this is we have to ask ourselves, am I guilty of doing the very same thing? See, there are many people today who fill church membership roles, church pews, Sunday school classes, choir lofts, and even pulpits with the very same problem. You're doing all the right things. When people look at you in the church, you think, man, that's a person that can really be used by God. But deep down inside, you're skimming. You're not in it for the right reasons. You haven't come to a true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And going through the motions doesn't get you a step closer to heaven's gates. You're just spinning your wheels. And as you spin those wheels, you're digging a grave deeper and deeper and deeper. But here's the beauty of the gospel. No matter how deep a grave you dig for yourself, Jesus' grace and his mighty arm of mercy is always strong enough to pull you from the pit. His mighty arm of mercy was strong enough to pull Judas from the pit if he would have asked, but he never came to that place. Never.
Jesus knew everything, right? John tells us that Judas was in money from the top. It was something the disciples found out much later. But Jesus knew the whole time because as God, he's omniscient. Why did Jesus allow that to happen? I picture in my mind as Judas and Jesus are standing right there and they're handing things out. Jesus looking at Judas with those knowing eyes. Judas knowing the whole time that Jesus knows what nobody else knows. Judas had every opportunity to repent. Judas had every opportunity to believe, yet he turned it down at every point. So you may be able to fool everybody around you, but you'll never fool the only one who gets the final say about your eternal destination and about your salvation. You can fool your spouse, but your spouse is not your final judge. You can fool your Sunday school teacher, but your Sunday school teacher is not your final judge. You can fool your preacher, but your preacher is not your final judge. God is our final judge. And when God looks at us, he looks at something different than everybody else even has the ability to look at. He looks at the heart. See, John revealed Judas's heart after Judas revealed his heart. But Jesus knew Judas's heart while Judas was still trying to hide it from everybody else. And was successful at doing it, but he was never successful at hiding it from Christ. It reminds me of the most terrifying scripture in all of the Bible to me as I look at it. In Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7 verse 20, he says, So I'll recognize them, the true believers, by their fruit. But not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? But then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. If you're here and you're basing your Christianity and your worth for heaven on all the things that you've done right, you still don't know Jesus. You may know the right things to do. You may know what he said was right to do, but if you don't know the one who said it was right to do them, it doesn't get you anywhere. Only knowing the righteous one gets us to heaven. See, the mark of the true follower of Jesus Christ is not found in what we do with our hands. The mark of a true follower of Jesus Christ is whether his marks are found on our hearts. The only hope for our hearts, desperate and wicked as they are, is to give them to Jesus Christ because he's the only one who has the capable hands to handle our heart. He's the only one who can change that heart. Have you given your heart, your faith, your trust, to Christ. The tragedy of an unchanged heart and an unchanged life is marked by being spiritually close, yet spiritually far. It's marked by knowing to do all the right things, but yet still doing them with all the wrong motives and for all the wrong reasons. But the tragedy of an unchanged heart is also marked by turning down the love that's right in front of you. And I'm not going to belabor this point because I think I've mentioned it a lot. For three and a half years, Judas was able to walk with Christ, to walk with the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, to walk with Jesus Christ, God's love personified, and turn it down at every point. Jesus knew the whole time that Judas was going to betray him. Jesus said when he came, he said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And while he said that, a lost one was sitting right behind him on his team. And we look at that and we might be tempted to think was, 
What's Jesus doing? Why is he even allowing that? Here's why I think he allowed that. I think he allowed that in order for us to see the intensity of the pursuit and love of the Lord. That even though Christ knew what the outcome would be, he still kept Judas close. He still Though Christ knew what the outcome would be, he kept him close. He still gave him an opportunity. He still came to seek and to save that which was lost. And I think it also teaches us that we can do everything we can to reach the world, but some people just will choose not to be reached. But it doesn't stop us from reaching. Jesus never stopped reaching because Judas didn't receive. He kept reaching all the way to the very final moment. See, it's not meant for us to reject this kind of love from Jesus Christ. Put yourself in Judas's shoes for just a minute. What must it have been like to be Judas for those three and a half years? Every day being an open invitation for Judas to get it right. Every moment was filled with the convicting plea of come to me, all you that labor. And he was laboring. Come to me, all you that are heavy laden. And he was heavy laden, had to be with shame and guilt. He said, I will give you rest, yet he never came. As he watched thousands come, lepers, lame, blind, sinners, prostitutes, everyone coming and being changed, Judas stayed back. How miserable it must have been to be that close to the greatest love the world has ever known and still reject it every hour of every single day. He was miserable because it's not natural for the soul to reject that kind of love. It's just not natural. It's not meant for us to do that. John chapter 3 verse 16 tells us, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In 2 Peter it says, God is not slack concerning his promises. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And because of that, Jesus was motivated in his ministry to make salvation available to all, especially to those who were around him at all times. But it's not natural for the soul to reject that. I wonder today how many churches are filled with people who are spiritually miserable Because they're still continuing to turn down the love that's right there in their face every day. And I want to promise you this. Our commitment here at Graceway is that you will not be able to come into this place or be around this place without coming to understand and be presented with the love that has been provided to save you. God forbid that anyone should come in these doors and sit through a service where they do not realize that they are loved by God. That are we unlovable? Yes. I think there's ample proof within this room, me being the first one. But does God love us? Yes. He was miserable because it was not natural to be around that much love and not respond to it and not be melted down by it. See, the problem is, for many of us, we've become miserably close to the Lord and that misery has led to a numbness inside of us. The more we reject it, the more miserable our life and existence becomes, but it also becomes easier to reject it. See, they always say that practice makes perfect, but in this case, practice makes for tragedy. Continually rejecting the opportunity to receive Jesus Christ becomes easier and easier and easier. And it becomes tragic that we never receive. How horrible it is to know the gospel but never respond. How miserable it must have been to know the greatest love the world has ever shown you time and time again, yet keep turning your back on it. So as we close out this morning, we've seen that an unchanged life is marked by being close 
but still spiritually far. It's marked by doing all the right things, with, but with the wrong motives. It's marked by having love right in your face, yet turning it away at every point. And lastly, the tragedy of an unchanged life is met by an empty end that could have and should have been avoided. So easily it could have been avoided for Judas. We see the end of his life in John chapter uh, a little bit later on. Judas is the most tragic figure in scripture. I believe he's the most tragic figure in all of history. To be so close to the Savior, yet miss salvation, what could be worse? So our text gives us the tragic moment when, Jesus, when Judas seals his fate. In John chapter 13, beginning in verse 21, it says, When Jesus had said this, he was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was talking about. And Now skip down to verse 26. It says, when he had dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. Why? Satan can only enter into the spirit that is empty of Jesus Christ. So Jesus told him, what are you doing? Do it quickly. None of those reclining at the table knew why he said this to him since Judas kept the money bag. And it says, then after he received the piece of bread, he immediately left and it was night. And what we have to understand about this tragic end is that for Judas, this tragic end eventually led to death for him. Just about everybody knows the story from here. Judas leaves that place and he goes out to tell the authorities where they could find Jesus. And here's the thing, he knew Jesus well enough to know where to find him. See, he didn't bring them back to the upper room. He brought them to the garden because he knew Jesus well enough to know that after supper, Jesus was going to go out into the garden to pray and to spend time with his father. So he tells the authorities to come with him and he, Jesus is then taken into custody, betrayed by a kiss on the cheek from one of those that were closest to him physically. Judas was close enough to kiss the Savior, but he still rejected him. Look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 3. It says, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus, Jesus had been condemned after Jesus was taken into custody, was then full of remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And he says, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And, he said, and they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. So he threw the silver into the temple and he departed. And then he went and he hanged himself. I've read several accounts on the timeline of this event because a lot takes place from here. Judas goes from betrayal to remorse to trying to change things to trying to free Jesus all to fail at that. And here's the thing, all that time he had time to still turn to Jesus and show commitment to him, but he still showed only commitment to himself because when Judas realized he couldn't change it, he realized and thought there was no hope. And so he ended his life. What's tragic about this is Judas the betrayer is actually dead before Jesus the Savior was on the cross. The challenge for us is not to let that be our end. Are there people within our churches today who are Judas that are literally trying and actively trying to upend what Jesus is doing within the church? There may be, but mostly it's not. Mostly it's just a personal thing of thinking, hey, I'm covered, I'm good. But there's something that you just can't let go of to grab hold of Jesus. Judas lived with the living water, the giver of life, the bread of life, the one who could call the dead back to life for three and a half years, but he never came to possess the eternal life personally in his life. The tragedy of Judas's unchanged life ended in death, but the greater tragedy is that today we have every reason and proof from Scripture to believe that Judas is in hell today. 
I would love to look at that passage when it says that he was full of remorse and said, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood, that that was his repentance of sin and then salvation. But if he had truly repented, he would have followed Jesus instead of ending his life. And it wasn't his suicide that marked him for hell. It was his unbelief and unrelenting rebellion from coming to Christ. Don't miss this. Jesus's, or Judas's eternity was not, sin, was not sealed by his sin of betrayal. His eternity was sealed by his sin of rejection. Even though he betrayed Jesus, he could have still found forgiveness. How do we know that? Because that same night, there was, he wasn't the only disciple that was, that was like given up on Jesus. Peter denied him three times. But what happened with Peter? Peter was still committed to Christ. When the resurrected Christ came to Peter, he said, I love you and I'm so sorry for what I've done. He followed him still. Judas was different. So as we close out this morning, we have to understand that rejecting Christ will always lead to a tragic end. But it doesn't have to be our end. This is what makes it so tragic. Judas's end is tragic is because it didn't have to be that way. It could have been avoided. And for each person here under the sound of my voice and watching today, that end can be avoided and should be avoided at all costs because there is grace in Jesus Christ. If you're realizing and sitting here this morning feeling that conviction of, I have been filled with the spirit of Judas. I've been going through the motions. And you're sitting here thinking, I can't get saved because too many people already think I am. Listen, I would rather be people shocked. I would rather it be that people were shocked that I wasn't saved here on earth than be in heaven and shocked that I never got to heaven. Don't let your pride keep it away. Don't care who you are. If you don't know Christ, if you're not truly following him as your savior, today's the day. Don't let it go. Those 30 pieces of silver aren't worth it. They're just not. So the challenge this morning is to come to Jesus. You've been around him for a while. Now it's time to be with him. To start that relationship with him. You're close, but don't stay far away. The tragedy of unchanged life is marked by being physically close, yet spiritually far away. Is that you? Are you physically close to salvation in church, doing church things, knowing church people, yet you still don't know Jesus of the church? What it's all about. The tragedy of an unchanged life is marked by doing a lot of good and right things, but with the wrong motive. Is that you? Why are you really here today? Why are you still watching right now? What is it that really makes you say, I'm a follower of Jesus? What are you basing that upon? And if you start to pull out this resume of all these things, listen, your resume should include one item and one item only. Jesus saved me. Tragedy of an unchanged life is marked by turning down the love and the grace that is right in front of you. How many times are you going to hear the gospel message and the invitation given yet turn it down? Maybe it's become a matter of pride. Maybe it's become a game. Maybe it's become a matter of apathy for you. But again, I'd rather people be shocked that I got saved and they already thought I was than for them to get, get to heaven and thinking I was and find out I wasn't. Don't let your pride keep you from the greatest love you'll ever know. The tragedy of an unchanged life is one that is also marked by that tragic end. But the beauty of the gospel is our end does not have to be tragic because Jesus can change it all. Because when Jesus touches you, and I mean really gets a hold of you, he changes you. He doesn't leave you the same. Today is the day. Today is the day. A lot of us are too prideful to even say, you know what, I'm Judas. But every one of us were to some extent. 
And we still carry a little bit of that with us. The question is, do you know Christ as your Savior? Do you know that you know that you know? As we bow our heads and as we close our eyes, are you past the point of weary? Is your burden weighing heavy? Is it all too much to carry? Then let me tell you about my Jesus. Do you feel that empty feeling because shame's done all of its healing? Let me tell you about my Jesus. He makes a way where there ain't no way. He rises up from that empty grave. There ain't no sinner that he can't save, so let me tell you about my Jesus. His love is strong and his grace is free, and the good news is that I know that he can do for you what he's done for me. Let me tell you about my Jesus, and let my Jesus change your life. We opened with the same remarks. Jesus changes lives. Has he changed yours? He could have changed Judas's with no problem, but it was up to Judas and it's up to you. So what will it be? Heavenly Father and Holy Spirit, I pray now that you will have your way in this time and work in our hearts. I pray that it has been your message this morning. Thank you for the honor and the privilege of being able to be your messenger. Oh, but Lord, I pray that we would just look at you. And as we look at you, show us our need for you. If there's somebody here that is not safe, may they come to you and say, Lord Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm tired of doing the right things with the wrong motives. I want to genuinely follow you. Lord, I pray you'll do your work of salvation. I pray you'll do your work of calling us to a deeper faith, a greater obedience to you, and also to a greater concern for the Judases that are out there today. In Jesus' name, as we stand this morning and we have a time of invitation, a time of just reflection. If you need to come today and talk, if you need to counsel, you can come either to me or you can come to those, there are counselors in the back as well. Or if you say, hey, I'm, I'm kind of, I, I, don't, I, I don't want people to look at me. This is a matter between me and Christ. You're right. It is. So if you need to talk after the service, you can find me right out here in this lobby or you can find me right down here in this front. Or if you're watching virtually, email us at gracewaylex at gmail.org. No, yeah, dot com, gmail.com. <laughs> it's gmail, great. Okay, anyway, gracewaylex at gmail.com. I want to talk to you today. Or comment there in the section. Let's get this taken care of. Knowing Jesus is the most important thing. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.